Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Hey, folks, thank you for joining me here on episode 237. Today, I'm speaking with Mary Childs, a financial journalist and co host of NPR's Planet Money podcast, and better yet, an author. Mary is the author of The Bond King a biography about industry titan, billionaire bond trader, PIMCO co-founder, Bill Gross. Bill was once the biggest bond trader in the world and widely considered a legend who, in many respects, revolutionized the bond market. However, me personally, I knew very little about his story. and I'm sure that's probably the case for many others too which is the reason why I was keen to get Mary on the podcast as she spent countless hours researching and conducting interviews to produce her book. During this episode, we go through the life and times of Bill and Mary highlights some of the standout trades that put PIMCO on the map, including a highly controversial Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae trade during the 2008 financial crisis. Last thing, if you would like to get your hands on Mary's book and read about the events we discuss here in much greater detail, go to chatwithtraders.com slash Mary. This link will redirect you straight to the Bond King on Amazon. Now let's get to it. Here is my guest, Mary Childs. You know, I have such a great admiration for writers like yourself who go to the effort to just, you know, put a piece of work like this together because the amount of legwork involved in it just seems so extreme. It must be a relief to have had it, <laughs> got it done. Yes, it was an extreme amount of work and it is a huge relief. It's funny because I get feedback from friends who are reading it and like, they're like, holy smokes, this must have been a lot of research. Like it reads <laughs> like it was a lot of research. And I'm like, is that a good, th I mean, it was, but I feel like you're supposed to breeze through it and not be like, Wow, heavy lift, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it was funny that point right at the end, you said something about, you know, it was taken a while to get the book out and a rumor began to circulate about how you'd possibly been paid off something like right, the sum bribed. of $10 million yeah. not to publish mm -hmm. it. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> False rumor, I got paid $0 to take that long to not publish it. <laughs> what a shame, what a shame. I know, right? A real missed opportunity there. <laughs> right. And so you talked to, I believe, over 200 people, well over 200 people. Did mm -hmm. that include the man, Bill, himself? It did. So typically I can't comment on who I spoke to for research. You know, if they told me stuff on background, I can't say, oh, I talked to so-and-so. But if I talk to them on the record with their name attached, I can say that. And Bill Gross is among those who did speak to me on the record. Um, and you can kind of tell in the manuscript because, and I think this is consistent throughout. Um, if it's not, then that's just like a copy editing error on my part. But it'll, it'll say says in present tense if he, if he said it to me in the live conversation versus said if it was published elsewhere. That's really cool because often in these types of scenarios, like 
I know I um, interviewed the author who did the book on Jim Simons. Great, yeah. And the yeah, one on a, yeah, Nav, the, the Flash Crash Trader. And I don't think those guys really got to speak too much to the actual kind of subjects of the book. So it's nice that um, Bill was was open with you. Yeah, it is. And that's one thing that made him such a compelling, what what kind of appealed to me about this story, not necessarily knowing if Bill would talk to me. You know, that's always a bit of a luck of the draw, but he has been in the media for so long and talking so much about how he thinks and what he does and kind of thinking in a really interesting and open way about his life, you know, and that gave me so much material to work with, even if he didn't talk to me. You know, this is something which kind of surprised me from the book and something I was completely unaware of is just how much of a desire Bill actually had for to be famous. I thought that was kind of weird. Like, right. I don't really know any other traders who have a motivation to be famous. Yeah, I mean, Jeffrey Gunlock has a bit of a similar or at least like parallel in its way story where he was watching Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous while like eating, you know, takeout or, or something, you know, eating his meal on like some cardboard boxes in his apartment. And he was like, wait, what am I doing? What can I do that will get me this rich? And I, I mean, it's not the same because I think his motivation was not fame, is not fame, but it has been a byproduct of his success. So there's a little bit of a commonality between them in that way. Uh, but yeah, Bill's pretty, pretty special. I don't think there are that, you know, if you want to be famous, most people don't go into investment management. Yeah, they'd go to Hollywood or something like that. Yeah, just straight to TikTok. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course, the modern day Hollywood. Exactly. <laughs> so tell me, why do the people need a book on Bill Gross? Like, why did you figure he <laughs> would be such an interesting character to profile? It became unfortunately more relevant than I anticipated with the kind of end of the interest rate paradigm, you know? So so I think, you know, the the market's low-key crashing. I didn't intend for that to happen, but it does sort of underscore the relevance of this book. Um, you know, Bill, Bill himself is, as I've said, fascinating and open and reflective and just kind of a labyrinth of, um, I don't know, human psychology and just interesting stuff. But he also helped to create the modern bond market. And it's remarkable that a lot of these kind of living legends are just like milling about in our world and we can just like go ask them questions. That was one thing that was kind of um, miraculous when I was reporting this book. I, I got to talk to some real legends and people who were like, you know, way back that names that we don't know today that that really helped to create the world we live in. And that was really special and amazing. But but Bill is, you know, this engaging person with this very dramatic story and his history tells the history of the bond market, of basically, I would say, modern American finance. So to me, it's like, okay, you can get on this like spectacular roller coaster that's like deeply interesting and accessible from a human perspective. But by the time you get off the ride, you've learned about the bond market. Like, you know what's going on now. You can say interest rates and know what you mean. You can talk about yields and price. You know what I mean? To some extent, I don't think that's like universally true that everyone comes out completely fluent and is like no longer going to invest with BlackRock and they're going to day trade now. Like, I don't think that's the outcome. <laughs> but you at least feel, you know, if you're starting at zero, you'll exit with some fluency, right? And if you're starting with any degree of trading background, you'll be like, wow, I really feel like, you know, that's my hope. I really feel like I understand PIMCO's origins, what their edge was, what they brought to the table, all this stuff, and and kind of walk away with a more robust understanding of the context and historical situation. And I think that was what was compelling to me because it's so rare that you get, you know, a, a human story like this, an interesting, compelling story like this, but also get that kind of didactic element as well. It's usually one or the other, I feel like. Yeah. And as Bill is the Bond King, I just think it might be helpful for our discussion here if we just spend like a, a very brief moment now just to talk about, you know, the actual Bond market because to the retail world, Bonds are kind of, they're harder to access. They're sort of a bit mm -hmm. more behind the scenes, right? Totally. It's it's very much an institutional kind of game. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the things you actually highlight at the start of the book is that the bond market is actually much bigger than the stock market. But mm -hmm. it's kind of weird because less people know about it or, you know, understand it. We just don't talk about it in the same way. Yeah, exactly. So what is the bond market and, you know, what type of bonds was Bill and PIMCO involved in trading? Yeah, 
So the bond market is just the world in which, you know, governments and corporations can borrow large sums of money from investors, usually institutional investors like PIMCO, BlackRock, you know, enormous asset managers that um, have large amounts of money that they want and need to deploy and companies borrow for various reasons. They'll, you know, want to do a project. They want to finance themselves for whatever reason. And, you know, they agree on a term and a price, you know, a, a yield, uh, what the interest rate will be over that term. And that's kind of it. It's just the mortgage market for, for you know, big kids. Um, and I think the thing that makes that, you know, you're, you highlighted the inaccessibility or the, the kind of reduced access. Um, and I think that's a large reason why we talk about it so much less. It's just like so removed in a way from our daily lives. And if I wanted to play in that market, I kind of just couldn't. But I think, you know, it is more influential in my view. You know, this is where, you know, you can end up kind of handing the keys of the company over because the distressed investors that came in and like reshuffled things are suddenly running the company now. Or this is where, you know, you, you hear about James Carville in the, in the Clinton administration talking about how he, when he comes back, you know, after he dies, he wants to be the bond market because nobody's scared of anything like they're scared of the bond market. And like, that's real. You know, this idea of the bond vigilante has changed a lot over the years. And I think it kind of lost some of its potency in the U.S., but this is a real, you know, there's a lot of actual power in being a lender. And you saw this expressed really acutely in the American financial crisis, you know, in the interaction between the U.S. government and the, um, you know, the institutions like PIMCO and BlackRock and these relationships between um, that I think we largely didn't examine um, and and largely, you know, I think every every society kind of has to make its kind of agreement between the government and the the private industry and how much they're going to interact with credit markets and what they think is okay. Um, and I think that that is so poorly understood in our society. I think there's this like kind of, there is this knee jerk, um, like maybe this is all bad and how do we, you know, avoid it entirely, which I think might be impossible. Um, there's kind of the Occupy Wall Street sense of it, but there is this overarching, like it's just it's not as complicated as they advertise. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's a professional moding that happens where there's like, oh, don't don't look over here. It's it's just above your head. You don't need to fret about this boring, complicated bond world. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. the branding. And like, that's so unhelpful. That does not allow us to be kind of active participants in our world. And I think that it's so important that we cross that moat and engage in these conversations and learn. And and even if I can't invest directly in, you know, the, the enormous bond issues like PIMCO can, I should know what's going on. I should be aware of, you know, the the, the powerful actors shaping the world. So. To some extent, there's kind of a notion that bonds are perhaps a bit boring, um, yeah, a safer, less mm -hmm. risky product. Do you believe that mm -hmm. to be the case? No, it's a lie. <laughs> How so? <laughs> They're lying to you. I mean, you know, you get to charge higher fees if something's perceived as complicated and everyone's like, oh, bonds are so complicated. You know, there's bond math, which like, what's, it's just math. Like, I don't understand. Like, what do you, it does, it's not magical. You know, it doesn't like act weird. It's just bond math. It's just math. And the boring thing really super gets to me because like there are trillions of dollars invested in this world. And like not to say that money itself is inherently interesting, but I don't know. I think it matters. Like you can, you know, there's a comic um, on the web that, you know, is talking about how if you get involved, if you like get too much expertise in anything, you can think that anything is interesting. And the example that they give is pictures of Joe Biden eating a sandwich and you become <laughs> so in the weeds of it. You're like, oh, you know, it's not a picture of Joe Biden eating a sandwich if it doesn't have mayonnaise, you know, and like that's an opinion that you can have if you know too much about Joe Biden eating a sandwich. <laughs> like, so, so it's, there's a world in which you could hear me saying this and you're like, girl, you covered bonds for a decade. You're just living and boring and you think it, but no, like this is, you know, we use financial engineering to express influence and power and to express what we value in our society. And like, it's, it's a tool to kind of exert that power and influence and control. And it, it enumerates kind of our, our morals and what we, what we want to, you know, who we want to include and who we want to exclude, like everything that you can love and hate about humanity is expressed in the bond market too. And in increasingly fun and kind of zany ways. So, you know, I, to anyone who thinks that bonds are boring, like, A, read my book. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's not boring. And B, you know, Google Jeffrey Gunlock and C, like, 
think about like let me tell you about credit default swap like engineered defaults and like there's just so much to dig your teeth into because we're a creative species and we come up with a bunch of banana stuff all the time and the consequences are enormous yeah well it's okay because i think um the majority of people listening to this podcast will share your yeah, passion. For preaching hair, to the so. choir. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Yeah, carry on. <laughs> so one of the things we very briefly touched on there was kind of there's uh, almost a higher barrier to entry into the bond market. You know, Bill, in the very early days, he was just a, a regular Joe Blow. Mm-hmm. How did he break into the bond market? How did he get his start? I love his like hero origin story because it's so mundane He was just a business school graduate who graduated into a recession and there just weren't that many jobs. And he was like poking around and his mom saw a listing in the newspaper for credit analyst at Pack Mutual. And she was like, hey, you should apply to this. And he, which is just like, it doesn't get better than that. Right. And he actually wanted to be in stocks, ironically. And, you know, for the first couple of years of his career was like, "Ugh, how do I get to the stocks department? Like, this is boring. And (laughs) then you know, the the kind of opportunity opened up, the the stars aligned and the opportunity to start trading bonds, which was a revolutionary concept at the time, just started to happen. Like that that opportunity began to exist really. And Bill was at the kind of vanguard of that and helped to bring about that revolution. So he made bonds not boring, arguably. And yeah, just proved to be really, really good at it established a really great track record, um, found some robust, persistent market inefficiencies that he could kind of ride forever. And the rest is history in my book. (laughs) Can you speak to that part a little more about how bonds weren't so much quote unquote traded prior to kind of that 1970s era? Like when Bill started to get involved in this market, like how did he help to, you know, revolutionize it to some extent. Yeah, it is kind of a really wild thought that, you know, today to think about the bonds were not traded, but they really weren't. You know, a company would borrow. They would, you know, give you a little certificate that said, thanks so much for the dollars. You know, here's the, you know, I promise to pay it back. And here are little coupons literally attached at the bottom of the paper that you would tear off and mail in for an interest payment. And, you know, you'd say, okay, great. Like, thanks so much for doing business with me. You put it in the vault. And you tear off those little coupons and you mail them and you get your interest payment and that's that. And it was very stable and very, you know, it wasn't confusing. It was just enumerated and then that's what happened. And when Bill Gross came along, inflation was really high. And so that proposition was increasingly looking kind of bleh, right? You know, why would you want to accept yesterday's fixed income payment? You know, this stream that you agreed to yesterday that suddenly, you know, with inflation really high and rising starts to look really like a bad deal. So Bill Gross was like, why don't I trade these bonds? Why don't I sell that bond that we bought yesterday that suddenly looks worse and buy a new bond that we like better? And, you know, this can also apply to like changes in credit worthiness or like the outlook for a company. Maybe suddenly I don't like that company anymore and I want to sell that bond and, you know, buy a new issue or buy, you know, a different bond of a company that I think is going to do better. So this idea, you know, it's it's it was present and alive in the in the equities market and in, you know, other places certainly, but it just wasn't really a thing in bonds. And, Obviously, you know, Bill couldn't possibly have brought about this revolution by himself, given that if you want to trade, you have to trade with someone. So there were a couple people across the country. And there's this one guy in Southern California, Howard Rakoff, who's a dear friend of Bill's, who I think of as kind of patient zero. Like he was the guy evangelizing about bonds across the country and helped to really kind of seed the um, participants in this market. So, you know, once there were people to trade with, um, Bill started to be able to prove that this was a good idea by putting up good numbers. And this took a while, right? Like, I think it didn't, it wasn't initially right off the bat, like, wow, he made, you know, 30% or whatever. I think the first couple of years were rocky. You know, the parent company was this very buttoned up insurance company. And they were like, he was operating as a shell company, basically, with a little model portfolio within this life insurance company, which is like not, a, you know, not known to be a radical, um, like, incubator of innovation necessarily. <laughs> so it was a bit of a, a um, an outlier that they were able to do this. And the company kept being like, okay, like we're going to let you keep going, but can you go ahead and make this make business sense any minute? We might have to shut you down. And so it was kind of always on the edge right there about to not work. 
And eventually they proved the value of it. And they, you know, eventually over the, the decades started this kind of gradual process of spinning out into their own thing. Okay. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'd love to spend some time talking about some of the trades. You know, obviously what we just discussed here is kind of the, the, the foundations for what would become PIMCO. Actually, let me just ask you before we go into some of the trades, what was PIMCO like when it started? <laughs> Obviously, PIMCO is still around today, but I imagine kind of perhaps what it was in those early days is a bit different to what it's become today. Yeah. I mean, in a number of ways, I think in the early days, they were very focused on innovation and being early to new products. And it's not so much that they don't do that anymore. I can't really speak to the like innovative side of Pimico, but that's not like what they're known for or what they put forward or, you know, what I get when I talk to people there. Um, I think back in the day, it was very scrappy and they've long kind of prided themselves on, you know, a very slim um, profile. Like they're only, they, they like to cite, you know, assets per capita um, that they just have a really, really uh, small staff relative to the money that they manage. And that's basically been true all the time. I mean, for a while, it was like Bill Gross and Chris Dialinus and Jim Muzzy and Bill Podlick, and that was like it. And what they did was, you know, they found a way to convince clients, first of all, to invest, to allow them to use derivatives. And this was pretty, you know, out there when they started out. This was um, not what every mutual fund manager was doing at the time. And in doing so, they really gave themselves this kind of extra ability um, and and their fluency with and kind of comfort with derivatives ended up being a big part of their outperformance. And when I say big part, I mean, it's like basis points per quarter, basis points per year, but in fixed income, like that's the way to win, right? It's mm. not, we're not talking, we're not going to be talking about like 15% a year on that, but like those basis points add up. And then over time, if you have this like more reliable, um, you know, there was this approach to trading that Bill Gross called structural alpha that involved kind of uh, leaning on, it's not loopholes, but it's like the ways the contracts are built that just allow him to find extra pockets of time where everybody else is just like, okay, I have my contract, it's squared away, I'm done. And Bill's like, oh, this contract isn't going to require me to have cash for this product until the, you know, the strike date, the end, the maturity date. So I have time to invest that, you know, money sitting around my, you know, I can invest that in short dated floating corporate notes and get a little bit extra yield. And very few other people, I think, were interested in doing that. And in that way, Bill Gross was able to get those extra basis points and outperform. I love that term, structural alpha. I know, right? Yeah. On that, can you speak to any examples of you know, any examples of that, like I know you note in the book um, some of the standout trades they made, uh, particularly kind of in those first maybe kind of 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. Is is there any particular trade that you'd like to share that, you know, was a clever kind of exploit or they, they noticed something that was mispriced or they, they uncovered an edge kind of where others hadn't looked or 
you know, in a product that others didn't understand? Yes. So I think my favorite would be the Ginny May futures, the uh, CDRs in 1983-84. And this was a contract that was basically newish. It was invented and kind of rolled out in the late 70s. And PIMCO basically figured out that there were too many options within the contract, that there were kind of, there were, it was new. It was like not totally, we were also kind of feeling our way through what options were and could be and how they would act. And this product just really hadn't been tested. Like rates hadn't started to fall ever for this product. You know what I mean? So there was this like sense that it had all these different levers within the contract in order to make it attractive for people to trade it. But people were trading it without really examining what those levers would mean to different environments. And PIMCO thought about it, looked at the contract, and they were like, wait, are you kidding me? Like, there's way too much here. Like, this is great. And no one else seemed to have figured it out. So, or and if they had figured it out, they didn't have the wherewithal or the ability to exploit it. And PIMCO did. So it's a really convoluted chapter, but uh, but it really feels like when I was reporting it out, I was like, this feels like, you know, a bank heist movie. There's a scene where they're like in Chicago driving to different banks with armed security guards picking up duffel bags. Like, when does that happen? So it's it's pretty fun. And I think it, it lays out sort of nicely the complicated, but, um, you know, available. Like this opportunity was just sitting there and PIMCO just did it. You know, like part, sometimes the the opportunity is just being the person that's willing to do it. And I think PIMCO was was definitely good at that, was definitely, you know, more than a lot of other institutions, more than most institutions willing to kind of go out on a limb. And maybe there's reputational risk. Maybe there's regulatory risk. But, you know, if the trade's worth it, it's worth it. And in this case, it it did really end up being worth it for clients and reputationally ended up being a big benefit to PIMCO because it established them as like incredibly scary smart. Like they're going to rip your face off and you're not going to know it for two weeks. And <laughs> I think that really helped kind of get their, you know, establish that, that reputation for them on the street. Yeah. What was their reputation in the industry? I mean, back in the day, it was kind of like, who are these guys on the West Coast to some extent? Um, you know, I talked to a consultant who was one of, who, you know, encouraged one of their very early clients. And it was definitely like, who are these young whippersnappers, you know, like these upstarts in California of all places. (laughs) And (laughs) which is like, you know, been a point of pride of theirs that, you know, PIMGO moves Wall Street West is like a thing they say about themselves. And it, it evolved, you know, I think this, this trade was pretty early in, in their corporate history. So it was, actually a huge deal. You know, people kind of are like, it wasn't the biggest trade in the universe by, you know, profit. Um, and I think they would have gone bigger if they could have. They would have put just every single thing they could have into it. But it helped, you know, every broker of a certain age, if you talk to a broker who was alive then and trading, they're like, oh yeah, no. Like, <laughs> that was a big deal. So I think before it was kind of like who, these, you know, mysterious kind of whippersnappers in California that that people didn't really know a lot about or paid that great of attention to. The Ginny May trade helped to put them on the map. And then after that, Bill Gross started to go on Wall Street Week, the PBS show every Friday night that literally literally everyone in the industry watched. And that, I think, really helped him to become this kind of more mainstream finance face of the bond market. Okay. I think I, I may have misread this bit wrong, but I think there was a bit in the book when I was flicking through and it said something to the extent that traders kind of knew when they were joining PIMCO that they may find it difficult to get a job anywhere else afterwards. Yeah. Why was that the case? I presume this plays into the reputation still. It does. It does. And this is sort of an interesting, like a lot of people in credit know this and then people in kind of the larger retail mutual fund investing world are much less aware of this. So I think that kind of image dissonance or, or you know, disparate, that gap in perception is is kind of an interesting one to me. But, you know, if you're trading against PIMCO as a Wall Street bank, as like, you know, their sales coverage, it's not a fun experience. They, you know, the, the whole thing, the point at PIMCO was Wall Street's going to take our money and that money belongs to clients. That's client money and you do everything in your power and then a little bit more to make sure that they aren't making money off of us. And this goes all the way back in PIMCO's history. This was a Bill Grossism from, you know, way before and Chris Dialinus. And, you know, this was just like embedded in the DNA of the firm. So 
The problem with that is if I'm the sales cover, if I'm the the trader at PIMCO and I'm trying to interact with my sales coverage on Wall Street and I'm being as hardcore as I can and I'm yelling at them and I'm trying to get that extra basis point basically off their commission, you know, off the bid ask, then they're going to hate me. <laughs> like there's a way to act in, in trading and this is not really it. Like PIMCO didn't really do all the fun dinners that everybody does. They're not in New York. They're not going to the shows together. They're not like in the flow in that way. Some of them were, you know, and, and, and you know, to some extent, this is like per person, like it, it'll be a little different depending on who you're talking to. But writ large, you know, the kind of cultural thing was like, oh, we are not friends with Wall Street. They're our enemy, basically. <laughs> and then the problem arises that if you have been working at PIMCO for however many years and you've been scorched earthing your sales coverage and they hate you, if you want to try to get another job. So, OK, you go do your interviews. They love you. They think you're amazing. You're so smart. They call around to basically get a reference check and they call your Wall Street sales coverage and they're like, hey, what do you think of this guy? And that sales coverage is going to be like, oh my God, I hate him. And I think that that, you know, you kind of know that going into the job to some extent. If you know PIMCO and you have been in kind of the flow of information and you know people who work at the banks, you may very well be aware of this and the pay is supposed to offset that. But that doesn't really kick in until the high end. and. I think it can still catch people by surprise. I think it caught some people by surprise. And that kind of is, is you know, you've tried to build this career, but it turns out that your years at PIMCO only serve to diminish your cumulative power because the only power you can exert in the market is by virtue of being an agent of PIMCO. You can't take it with you. Yeah, as you kind of very briefly touched on there, the outsized salaries were to mm -hmm. help with that, I guess, which yeah, is exactly. another interesting point in the book. We wouldn't be doing this uh, episode justice if we didn't talk about PIMCO's role in the financial crisis of 2008. Just to begin with there, Bill did foresee this quite well and it seems that he kind of was a little bit too early on it. But mm -hmm. regardless, mm -hmm. how did PIMCO position themselves to capitalise from the financial crisis? Yeah, they did... I think a really good job of risk managing into it and and out of it. And I think that this this is what um, structurally sets them apart from a lot of the names that we know from the great financial crisis. And it's, you know, victors. Um, they really didn't do a big short, right? They didn't try to put on some like incredibly time sensitive options trade. They just ran ramped down risk. And kind of sat it out, sat, sat out all these new issues coming to market that were, you know, they try to avoid the triple C rated junk debt that's a lot riskier, that's going to do really poorly in a recession. And because, as you say, they were early, that meant that they kind of sat there and watched everyone else continuing to party for a while. And they're just like, oh, like that's painful. So everyone else is still outperforming. They're underperforming. They're just like waiting for this thing to happen. And timing the market is a really miserable exercise. And they basically had this painful period. And then finally, when the crisis did arrive, when things started to come through, you know, BNP froze their funds and it started, they were like a little gleeful. I think Bill's notes at the time were like, you were fooled, Mr. S&P and Moody, you know, very like, <laughs> finally, it's here. Told you. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. The moment has finally come to pass a little bit of, I don't know if it's grave dancing. Um, but so they were able to avoid a lot of the losses that everyone else incurred. And as a result, they had a lot more agility and ability to scoop things up when everyone else was freaking out and kind of fire sailing what they had. They were just trying to get rid of the most liquid or really the anything that they could get rid of. And PIMCO was sitting there not in pain, not freaking out and able to buy those things up at a discount. So you see that... Um, that kind of manifest over a couple of years. You know, you look at the PIMCO Income Fund, for example. It did great in the aftermath of the recession as well, which I think is instructive because it's not like they had one quarter of like an enormous, huge $1 billion profit. You know what I mean? It's more that it was like they structurally took advantage of the downturn, capitalized on it, and were able to kind of ride that for a while. So it's from a risk management perspective, it's like more of an informed risk. It's more of a, um, like a, I don't know, less scary risk um, and, and more stable. And how did they become involved with the US government? PIMCO almost had like an influence over the US government. And I think mm -hmm. uh, more specifically, 
when it came to, was it Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae? Can you speak <laughs> yeah. about that controversy? So, yeah. So they basically, these are the quasi governmental institutions that backed mortgages, uh, either directly or indirectly. And, you know, mortgages were kind of the epicenter of this crisis. Not kind of, they were very much the epicenter. And the whole crisis was oriented around, you know, people had borrowed too much money and we had, you know, liar loans and, you know, robo-signed mortgage documents. People had had bought all these homes and, and banks had kind of encouraged the um, buying and, and repackaged the debt into collateralized debt obligations and a lot of other structures that we um, know a lot more about today. But basically, you know, the the quasi- governmental institutions, the kind of, you know, they were, um, they were called government sponsored and, and it was sort of unclear how sponsored they were. It was not, the government had never really articulated it. And it was like sort of this halfway point that, that we just really didn't examine or talk that much about. And in the crisis, it became acutely relevant whether or not the U S government was going to actually back these mortgages. So it's like, you can't really have it both ways anymore. You have to pick. And PIMCO, made the very, very, very big bet that the government would back the mortgages, would basically say, okay, Fannie and Freddie are government institutions. Like, they're no longer questionably sponsored. They're no no longer quasi-sponsored. They're no longer in this kind of liminal space between sponsorship and not. The government basically ended up articulating it and saying, okay, we are just going to take them into conservatorship. This, These are government institutions and backing those mortgages. And the bottom line of that was, you know, instead of the mortgages being in the private sector and being kind of in free fall and nobody wanting to take the loss. And, you know, these were these were uh, pools of mortgages that were full of things that were defaulting. You know, people couldn't make their payments. And the the like the go had the government not done that, had the government not stepped in and articulated that support would have been just increased spiral. You know, the the situation at the time was just kind of chaos and a total like zapping of trust and confidence in the system and in the ability of people to pay and just no idea where the bottom was. And as PIMCO wrote at the time, what was needed was someone with unlimited capital, basically, with the ability to print money, with, uh, you know, someone to step in to say, okay, don't worry, I've got this. And that ended up being, in kind of a bunch of different ways, the U.S. government. And you know, coming in as not just the lender of last resort, but also backing these mortgages. And the day that that news came out, it, um, you know, that was the best day on record for PIMCO's flagship total return fund. And I mean, that's no coincidence, right? Bill Gross had been an enormous investor in this space for years. The U.S. government was well aware of PIMCO and its, you know, kind of positioning, not saying that they were like, you know, looking at its portfolio, but I think that PIMCO had been very, strongly in the press and in the media talking about this and saying that the U.S. government needed to do exactly this. So I can't speak to the mindset of, you know, of the actors in the U.S. government at this time as to whether or not they were, you know, hype about doing this. Uh, like, ugh, like if there was some reticence of, of you know, I can't believe we have to do exactly what PIMCO wants. Um, no one no one told me that, but I can only imagine. Um, so they, you know, there was this this weird thing where PIMCO was like, hey, do you mind doing this? And then the government just did it. <laughs> I actually got in my notes here and this this sort of sums it up perfectly is I'm not sure if this was just a line you wrote in the book or if it was a quote from someone who you spoke with, but um, grind your view into everyone else's consciousness, get people on board, force the market to turn. I guess that kind of sums up what you just described there. <laughs> yeah. Those are my words. I wrote that. <laughs> Okay. Well, let's just skip forward a bit. I know we're missing a lot of the story, but that's why you've written the book. Speak to me about when Bill's public image began to shift. You kind of described it in the book as losing his crown, mm-hmm. but what sort of started to change the way that he was perceived by the public and why did it matter? Yeah, it's a great question, and there are so many potential answers. Um, I would say the media image began to change really in uh, February 2014. So in January 2014, Mohamed El Arian, the CEO, leaves, and it's pretty unexpected. It hadn't been, you know, broadcast as they normally do with, you know, management changes, massive management changes at big corporations. And the Wall Street Journal reporters, Greg Zuckerman, who we talked about a minute ago, and Kirsten Grind started to poke around on this. And they were like, this is not the full story. Like something happened. And they published this big story in February that says, you know, turmoil at the top and 
enumerates all these different instances in which Bill Gross and Muhammad Ali Rain had friction. Um, you know, publicly in meetings had kind of gotten at each other's throats a bit. And it kind of also ticks through a bunch of other moments where Bill Gross was kind of a jerk. And, you know, he was hard on people in this way. He demanded that, you know, there was no talking on the trade floor, no one make eye contact. He was just pushy in this way, intense in that way. And this was a really shocking article to a lot of people because, again, like Bill Gross was this celebrity, but his kind of day-to-day intensity and um, the the intensity of the work culture at PIMCO wasn't known outside of those kind of credit market circles. So, yeah, if you're Wall Street coverage and you, you know, talk to your person at PIMCO every day, you're going to know. But the broader retail, you know, finance watching world wasn't aware and thought that Bill Gross was this like folksy, adorable, eccentric, like interesting guy, which he is. But there was this other side. And I think that both had the effect of like disrupting his image and also kind of got a bee in his bonnet where he had loved that image and had cultivated it for decades and had tended to it. And that was, you know, as we discussed, fame was his great motivating factor and and it's what he wanted out of this whole thing. So the fact that that image changed and was not what he had wanted it to be was suddenly negative, I think was really destabilizing for him. In addition to Muhammad Alarian's departure itself being destabilizing. So he's trying to regain control and trying to kind of reassert the narrative, reassert, you know, whatever influence he can over his perception. And basically every attempt to do that, every every attempt to regain control just goes awry. So there's an instance in the summer where he makes this like very bananas call to Jen Oblon, then at uh, Reuters. And I mean, I remember reading the trans, I remember reading her article and being like, oh my God, what? Like <laughs> it was just that out of bounds, just so not the normal course of what we report on and what we see from, you know, professional money managers or CEOs or CIOs or any of these people, you know? So, and then I think the other big moment was the Morningstar conference in 2014, wherein he gave this like totally bizarre speech um, that I view in retrospect. Actually, I, I think, you know, in almost immediate retrospect, I was like, oh, that was a cry for help, more or less. He was like weirdly sending up a bit of a flare and being like, things at PIMCO are not okay. Like trying to somehow, uh, you know, say, I'm your guy. I'm the guy, you know, you've loved for all these decades and PIMCO's great. Everything's fine. Eh. But it was so odd and a bit jumbled and confusing. And people were just like, what's going on with this guy, actually? <laughs> you know, it's one thing to have a journal article about you being kind of mean. And it's really another to give a speech that just like wildly disorients a crowd that is like optimally primed to hear your message and love you forever. You know what I mean? So those would be the big ones that I would, I would say, um, the journal and then the Morningstar conference. And so what year did he actually wind up leaving? 2014, September. Oh, okay. And what did, I know this departure, even though his public image had begun to shift a little bit, his departure from PIMCO was still largely a shock. Absolutely shocking, yeah. What did it mean for the broader market? Did it have a larger impact? Oh, yeah. It's one of those things that's like kind of funny in retrospect, but I can barely over, like I cannot overstate how big this was. Like people thought that it was going to crash the market because he was just (laughs) such an enormous investor at such an enormous firm. Like he himself controlled the flow of like billions of, not like billions, definitely billions of dollars and like like a lot of billions of dollars like just him so and he had his favorite markets like everyone knew that like this guy likes tips he likes brazil he like everyone could enumerate the things that they know that he likes and the markets that you know depending on who you talk to especially in emerging markets where pimco was so outsized you can really draw a line of like okay what does this mean for this market like if this enormous buyer just evaporates what if no one else at pimco has the same love for brazil that bill gross did what does that mean? Like, is there going to be some, so all of these thoughts, you know, the entire market was like looking through the published holdings of PIMCO total return of its ETF, like just trying to figure out how they were positioned and trying to lean on those positions. And regulators were concerned. Like it was, people expected billions and billions and billions of dollars to leave PIMCO immediately and probably follow Bill Gross to wherever he went next, which was Janus. And I think that you know, again, in retrospect, like that so didn't happen that it's like it it feels there's a little bit of revisionist history that you could do where you're like, oh, I mean, it wasn't that big. It was enormous. <laughs> like it's I covered it at the time and it was like a just 
you know, 10 alarm fire on my beat of just absolute intensity and like whack-a-mole with these enormous stories for, for months, just trying to, as people tried to like figure out what would happen and, and if this was going to be the kind of seismic shock that destabilized the market. So was there a mass exodus of funds from PIMCO when he left? Yes, there were massive outflows. Um, PIMCO total return shrank. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was, it was, you know, there had been outflows for a while, just as people, the taper tantrum had kind of taken a hit, um, for, for, um, bond markets in general for especially total return style bond investing. Um, but that, you know, and that had started in what May, 2013. So, you know, there was this kind of longer term trajectory, but at this point that had eased for other, uh, bond funds. And it was really just total return at PIMCO taking this enormous hit and and clients just pulling money month after month after month. And it did not follow Bill. Largely, it went to TCW, Double Line, and a bunch of like BlackRock, you know, um, you know, passive index funds. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. Just in summary, Mary, I'd like to ask you this question. Like, how did PIMCO become so massive? Like what did they do so well and get so right? They were early is like an easy answer to that. Um, They were very much there when the lights went on. And I think that is an enormous part of um, their success. It's also, you know, they were intensely interested in the details and in, you know, I gave my little speech about how contracts express what we value and, and how and you know, maybe Pimco wouldn't agree with me exactly on that, but they love details. They love complexity and they love kind of the way you can fiddle with those things and manifest your own cool trades. And I think that creativity and like embrace of products and new, um, you know, new stuff. Every time something new comes to market, they were very fast to adopt it and very enthusiastic. And I think that that was a lot of you know, their, their edge was just being a, not just sticking to what they had been doing, but always kind of looking for that next thing. And, and, you know, if there's a new world to conquer going to it. So that's a lot of it. And I think that they were good. They were good at being, I would say bullies. Um, I know not everyone agrees with me on that terminology, but I think that the aggression that they demonstrated that was very unpopular on wall street, I think it did work. Like, I think that they, did manage to establish themselves as this like very fierce and ferocious trading partner, but you did end up needing them in part because relative to the bond market, they were bigger again from the get go, just be, having, having been early and having been successful early. Um, so they were able to kind of throw their weight around, which, you know, people I think in, in, you know, equity trading, stock trading talk about, you know, agility and being nimble and think about size as like a detractor, as something that might hinder you. And I think that doesn't really apply in bond markets where, especially in a rising bond environment, if you just buy the market, you'll do well. But also you can get the best new issue allocation. And that's extremely powerful and I think contributive to a lot of outperformance. So I think the the edge changed over time. Yeah, I really love that answer. Oh, thank you. Good. <laughs> Last question here. What was one of the more surprising or lesser known things about Bill that you uncovered while writing the book? Hmm. That's hard because he's such an open book that so much, it depends on, and also I'm like, what is known about Bill? Like I know so much and the people I talk to know so much that it's like a like existentially confounding question for me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, But I think like, I don't know. I think his, um, this is weird, but maybe his humanity. Like I think there was this degree of confusion when someone gets that powerful and successful and rich and they're legendary and they're at the top of their company and they've been there for like we forget that those people are people and i think fame contributes to that money contribute all of these things feed this kind of chasm between us and them you know whoever the us is maybe i'm thinking of a pimco employee like a more junior person or just a person watching him on cnbc or whoever i think that there's you're like oh this guy has something figured out And the reality was that Bill is shy and introverted and insecure and, you know, competitive to a really staggering extent and not to his, you know, not always to his own benefit. And I think that that 
looks, you know, if you're standing on this side of that canyon, you're like, wow, Bill Gross, he has it all together. He's a billionaire. He's this, he's that. He's such a great trader, blah, blah. And then you also have a slight instinct to throw a stone because you think that he's this like, you know, great person on a pedestal. But like from Bill's experience, like he doesn't want to make eye contact with these people. Who is that? Who are all of these people staring at him? You know? And yeah, he's been successful to date, but that doesn't mean he'll be successful today or tomorrow or the next day. And so this like insecurity and also his kind of particular eccentricities that I think a lot of which can be attributed to or explained by his late in life diagnosis as being um, on the spectrum, um, as having Asperger's syndrome. Those things like show like like when you're trying to read that as a normal person, you're not like, oh, this, you know, eccentric billionaire legendary founder guy is simply shy and insecure. You're reading his behavior in a really different way from what he thinks he's doing. And I think that difference accounts for a lot of the friction that he ran into in 2014. And I think, I don't know, it's just been interesting to hear from people who are like, wow, I thought this guy was a real jerk, but I read your book and I feel like I really feel for him. I I really, I don't know, like, seems like he got a, a tough deal, you know? So that's been interesting. And I think I, as a writer, that's kind of what you want to accomplish, like humanizing someone or at least making, you know, it's not an interesting story if he's a caricature, right? If he's just a cartoon running around like bludgeoning people like we, I could just watch, you know, Looney Tunes. But I don't know that that's been a fun thing to hear that people really feel like they understand this like nuanced and interesting person more and better, even after decades of being in the media. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, folks listening to this podcast, if you'd like to get Mary's book, The Bond King, you can go to chatwithtraders.com slash Mary, M-A-R-Y, and that will redirect you straight to The Bond King on Amazon. Uh, Mary, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. If someone wants to follow along with, you know, kind of your everyday reporting or just um, you online and sort of keep in touch with what you're up to, uh, where's the best place to go? Are you on Twitter or anything like that? I am indeed on Twitter. Regrettably, I am at MDC. Um, I'm on Instagram at Mary in America. And I have a Substack that I update at least annually. Uh, it's offtherun.substack.com. Okay. And it's probably also worth mentioning that you host um, the NPR Planet Money podcast. Yes, Planet Money, NPR's twice weekly economics podcast. It's really good. Very good. Well, I will uh, dig up all links to what you just mentioned there and pop them in the show notes. Thank you. Again, Mary, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, It's been awesome to chat with you. And once again, congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. It's been a real honor to be on here. It's been a really fun chat. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.